Hey Brian, welcome to the 34th episode of The Goods Film Podcast. How you doing this evening? Doing alright, Dan. I am trying a little something experimental with my sound setup. Uh, hopefully it'll give you better results when you're editing. Uh, but we'll, we'll see. If there's a catastrophic failure, uh, I suppose we'll find out in the end. The proof will be in the pudding, as they say. And I'm sure... Listeners have already determined whether or not there's a catastrophic failure given on what your sound quality is right now, but yeah, we will or, see. or if this episode exists. If there's no episode, something went wrong. <laughs> so we are going to discuss the oldest movie we've ever talked about on the goods. It's from 1934, a Best Picture winner. It happened one night, directed by Frank Capra, and somewhat appropriate, I suppose. To watch a movie from 1934 in our 34th episode so here we go oh good catch yep we're jumping back 13 years before the somewhat similarly titled it happened on fifth avenue movies back then always wanted to tell you when it happened and where they also wanted you to know that something did in fact happen it was one of those happening movies not nothing happening yeah, movies where things happened were all the rage. Uh, Richard Linklater <laughs> had not come along yet. <laughs> this is a pre-Seinfeld era. This movie stars Clark Gable as Peter Warren. Interestingly, the first movie I think that I've ever seen Clark Gable in. I've never seen Gone with the Wind, and I don't know what his other big movies are. But I knew him from stills from various movies and film books that I've read. And he carries himself far cooler and more enjoyable to watch than I was guessing based on how the shape of his face is and how ugly his mustache is. <laughs> Different times. He's a dapper dude. Yeah. And then the co-star is Claudette Colbert. I did verify it's not Colbert like Steven. I really hadn't heard anything of this actress before, but apparently she was a big time early talkie star afi chose her as the 12th biggest female star in hollywood history near the turn of the century so i thought that was pretty high praise given i had never heard of her before really and the reason i picked this movie is because you know 2020 2021 unusual year lots of things got bumped and delayed we actually even though it's may we we just had the oscars and the best picture for 2021 was announced and I thought it would be fun to go look at a best picture movie that I've always wanted to see. And that is this romantic comedy. Notable for a few reasons. In part because it's one of three movies to win the quote-unquote Big Five Oscars. That is Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and then its respective Best Writing category. Whether it's Best Original Screenplay or Best adaptation and i think this one was adapted but i'm not 100 percent sure i can't remember and i was doing a little bit of reading on the best picture award overall i actually counted how many best picture movies i've seen and i asked brian to do the same so brian we can now share i'll, I'll go first i've seen 23 best picture movies 
And I think we're coming up on 100. We're not quite there yet. We're like a nine. This was 93 or something. I can't remember. So that means I've seen about a quarter of them. And actually four of them I only have seen for the first time because they were selections on this podcast. That is Parasite, The Apartment, Titanic, and now this. I still felt like it should have been more. There was a lot of movies that I looked at. I was like, I should have seen that, but I haven't seen that. But what about you, Brian? Mine was 23. Yeah, I like that we've been knocking them out for the show. I've been a little surprised that they've popped up with such frequency here. Um, certainly there's a lot of catching up I still have to do, but I've actually seen 38 oh, of man. the Best Picture winners. You nearly lapped me. Yeah, it's like uh, 150% or so. I wonder how many I've seen that you haven't seen. Obviously, you've seen plenty that I haven't, but I'm wondering if there's any like in my list that are, that are missing for you. I'm sh- I'm sure there are. There's a bunch that I still need to see. Some make it easy because like if you've seen Godfather, there's a good chance you've seen Godfather too. Sure. Yeah. I knew I had seen the first winner, Wings, from 1927 because it popped up on Turner Classic Movies, and the host guy at the start said. Stay tuned for the first ever Best Picture winner. And I thought, oh, I should probably watch this. Uh, but I've actually seen the first three Best Picture winners. Oh, wow. Because after Wings came the Broadway Melody of 1929, which is interesting because it's actually the source of the songs in Singing in the Rain. People don't know that Singing in the Rain is a jukebox musical, but it is. It's all songs from the MGM, I think studio catalog from the 1920s when they were actually making their first talkies that's weird i knew that i knew that it had a weird history with some of its songs and like there's at least one segment that there's like a contractual obligation for the star to get his own song or i i don't know like some weird stuff went into the making of that that movie but it's still obviously revered as a classic so you actually i had a trivia question for you and you gave your answer. What is the first Best Picture winner? And you seem to know the answer, which is Wings. That also happens to be the wrong answer, or at least an incomplete answer. Did you know at the first Oscar ceremony, the first Academy Awards, they gave out two Best Picture winners? Really? Yeah, they had two. This was the only year they ever had two pictures. So one is Outstanding Picture, which eventually became Best Picture. And that was the name that stuck around. And because Wings won that one, that is the movie that is attributed as the first Best Picture. But they actually gave out two. The second award was called Best Unique and Artistic Picture, which was designed for, like, art movies. And I think sounds more prestigious. I don't know. But for that one, Sunrise by F.W. Murnau, won that so there were actually two best picture winners the oh wow yeah i did not know that that's interesting i think there was some discussion after the dark knight was totally snubbed there was some discussion of well maybe we should have two categories one for best mainstream movie and one for best art movie and that got nixed pretty loudly because people didn't want ghettoization of the quote-unquote mainstream movies and further confusion and stuff i don't know so i guess the number of movies that are nominated for best picture has changed a lot over the years but now i think it's between five and ten depending on 
somehow the how the votes the nominating votes are distributed or something so i think this year it was eight maybe i don't know that sounds right yeah i've heard that there's a cap of 10 but when i was growing up it was always five that was like i don't know there was something nice and round about it always being five which i kind of miss easier to watch them all if there's a smaller number that it can possibly be this is where i'll shout out buzzed on movies a topic near and dear uh, to my my heart and mind Uh, they always provide comprehensive oscar coverage every year and that's uh that's not a goal we strive to hit here no we're a little all over the place we're not we're one a week we're not comprehensive so i guess we could try to hit like every mainstream release but i like how we hop around me too and i like that we can uh can throw it back and watch a 1934 oscar sweeper or just watch some bad movies that will never be nominated for an oscar yeah uh, we're looking here at the uh, best picture roster and 1995's mighty morphin power rangers the movie is not on this list yeah tommy was snubbed from best actor for some reason so Oh, but one one last factoid before we actually get to the topic at hand. One of the Best Picture winners that I watched was Best Years of Our Lives. Have you ever seen that one? No, that's not on my list. So it's about veterans who come back from World War II, and it was made in like 1946 or something. But uh, one of the actors, he gets his hands blown off in the war. And so then he comes back and he doesn't have any hands and he's got to adapt to life. And they give him hooks like Buster Bluth. <laughs> and the thing is that this actor, that is really what happened to him. He he was not an established actor. He was a war vet who Whoa. was missing both his hands and was using these prosthetics. He's actually the only person to win two Oscars for the same performance because he got Best Actor and, like, a Special Achievement Award. That's wild. My last thought on Best Picture is that I've been reading this book called Pictures at a Revolution by Mark Harris, and it's about one topic, and that is the 1967 Best Picture race. So the five movies nominated were... The Graduate, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle, um, what's the one, they call me Mr. Tibbs, In the Heat of the Night, that one actually won, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And it it basically starts in about 1960 and traces in really impressive detail, but also told in a very narrative fashion how these movies got made and like what kind of different artistic movements and cultural influences were like a major part of their making. Cause this was right around the time that the studio system was completely dissolving and you know, the new wave of cinema was rising. And so it is a absolutely fascinating read. I'm about a third of the way into it and I highly recommend it. It's very readable. I, I lied. I have one <laughs> additional Oscar factoid that I think is compelling, which is that in the early years, instead of giving best actor or best actress for a role in a movie, it was all the roles the actor played that year. Oh, wow. So, like, if you were in multiple movies... I 
I don't think this went very long, but for instance, like, Yul Brenner starred in both The King and I and The Ten Commandments in 1956. And, like, they would take that into account. That's really interesting. I feel like there was a span where Leonardo DiCaprio kept having two or more movies out in an even year and then no movies out in an odd year. I think it was Leo. And I feel like if that was still around, he would have won his Oscar earlier. And he was, at that point, always the bridesmaid still. Exactly. Did did he eventually get one? He did for the, the bear one, The Revenant. Okay. How quickly I lose track. That That's all right. All right. Pivoting back to our choice of the evening. It happened one night. So I, I want to talk a little more about the title. We already kind of made fun of it a little bit from the peanut gallery, but this is just a really horrible title for a movie. This movie particularly. Because... It's very mysterious as a title. Like, what's the thing that happened? How did it all of a sudden happen on one night? But first of all, it's a romantic comedy. Like, there's not no surprise what the it is that's happening. It's two people falling in love. And it doesn't even happen on one night. It happens across, like, three nights. So, I don't know what they were thinking when they came up with this. So, what if we swap the title? Would it be any better if this was a night to remember and... The Titanic sinking was It Happened One Night. <laughs> I think both would be better with the other's title. Yeah, I, I think I agree, but <laughs> only slightly. <laughs> They're Neither of them are good. <laughs> I spent about three minutes trying to come up with a better title, and I really couldn't come up with anything except for The Walls of Jericho, which might have been deceptive about what it was. I don't think movies got that creative with their titles. But as we'll see, that is a very important thematic image throughout the film. Love bus. <laughs> a matter of principle. One of my favorite things about watching old movies is reading contemporary reviews. I did this for It Happened on Fifth Avenue. I just love the way that old newspaper reviews were written. And you can just hear like a stereotypical newsreel guy reading these these lines and here here's a couple from the new york times review so i like the new york times they've digitized their whole archive so it's really easy to find the the reviews and read them in their entirety so this came out in february 23rd 1934 describing the movie they said if there is a welter of improbable incidents these hectic doings serve to generate plenty of laughter and so one of the characters name is alexander andrews that's the the woman leads father. One beholds Alexander Andrews searching for his daughter in an airplane, expostulating with secretaries and sleuths because he is unable to find the missing girl. And it described some scenes depicting Warren, volley, Warren, by the way, is the male lead, depicting Warren volleying vituperation over the telephone at his city editor. And they, they closed by summarizing that it, it happened one night is... A good piece of fiction which, with all its feverish stunts, is blessed with bright dialogue and a good quota of relatively restrained scenes. Because when I go to a cinema, I want my relatively restrained scenes. That's what I'm aching for. Yeah. This is, the Great Depression is not a time for excess. <laughs> this is not the Gilded Age. We're all about relative restraint. So I'm ready to hop into the movie itself. It happened one night, 1934. What about you, Brian? Yeah, let's volley some vituperation. (laughs) 
Ellie Andrews, the, the female lead played by Colbert, is the daughter of Wall Street mogul Alexander Andrews, who recently eloped with the dashing King Wesley, who is a pilot and a treasure hunter. But Ellie's father, Alexander, is upset at the pairing and is trying to get an annulment because Ellie even hints that she just married this guy, King, in part to spite her father's overbearing ways. And already I got a lot of thoughts about what's going on. So first of all, very interesting to me that they decided to open the movie with the protagonist already married. I feel like if this movie were made 100 years later, or let's say 87 years later, that they would just be engaged. They wouldn't already be married trying to get an annulment. Yeah, I think I agree. Well, on Wikipedia, this is described as one of the last pre-code comedies. You know, where a bunch of edgy stuff happens. And I mean, I guess there is some sexiness here. There is some partial undressing. But maybe this is an instance of that. Like, a year later would having to get a divorce before romantic shenanigans can occur. Would that be an acceptable thing? I don't know. That's a really good point. And I think that's good context for this movie. The the pre-code element very much is a thing. This one doesn't like flaunt it too much. There's one scene where the the woman character kind of flashes her leg for sexy attention, which we'll get to, and definitely lots of innuendo. But, you know, it's not raunchy in the sense that we in 2021 would consider raunchy. But if you think about like what a code movie is, like even it happened on Fifth Avenue, the amount that that is just totally chased and you can't even get a little bit of innuendo in there. This movie feels more modern than many of the movies I've seen from the code era, just because it was able to be a little more loose with its depiction of the the characters and their proclivities of life. I don't know. Yeah, true. It also got me wondering this guy that she's married and wants to get the annulment from his again, he is a aviator slash treasure hunter. And it made me wonder, what is the modern equivalent of an aviator slash treasure hunter? I don't know, like a, maybe a professional athlete or like a TV star or maybe like an Instagram celebrity. I don't know. What do you think is the equivalent? Yeah, it's just somebody really well known. So I think an athlete or a, a movie star would be comparable. She says she was, like, running from her dad and jumped in a limo that was outside a building and, and met this dude, so... Somebody famous. But that leads me to ask you, what were you expecting this dude to look like? Because he doesn't show up for, like, half the movie. I was actually wondering if we ever were going to see him, but I was thinking of him being very bravado, in-your-face, obnoxious-type guy. Real kind of tough-looking and I would say he, his eventual appearance was a little bit underwhelming to me. Definitely. Yeah, I was kind of just filling in Billy Zane as Cal Hockley in my head. <laughs> that could have fit, yeah. That that's who's going to show up, like a Gaston guy. But this dude, he looks like a butler. <laughs> and he's kind of old. He, he, he looks like Alfred from the Batman comics. Like, maybe slightly younger than that, depending on what uh, adaptation you're going with. Yeah. But he's, like, pinched, and he has a little mustache. I, I guess pre-Hitler, everybody was into the little mustaches. It's not a good look. 
I, I'm with you. It makes you look 10 or 15 years older than you actually are. So Ellie's arguing with her dad about her marriage with King, and they get into a particular spat on a boat in Miami, I guess like a yacht or something. And Ellie hops overboard and swims to shore and acquires a bus ticket to New York. So she's going to bus from Miami to New York to reunite with King, her husband. And she's kind of evading her father, but her father calls in this full force of police and other investigators to try and find her on this road north to New York. Meanwhile, we meet the other protagonist, who is Peter Warren, played by Clark Gable. And it's not 100% clear to me exactly what the preceded all of this. We're just kind of thrown into what's going on, but I think he's on some sort of boozy escape trip with his buddies in Miami, and he gets on the phone with his editor, who is displeased, and Peter is drunk and arguing with his boss, and he gets fired over the phone and kind of struts away. He gets on a bus as well, and of course, it happens to be the exact same bus, the love bus, if you will, that Ellie is on. So during this phone conversation, he's got these, maybe they're his friends, it's like a bunch of drunks hanging around outside his phone booth. And somebody asks, like, what's going on in there? One of the guys standing around outside says something like, oh, the king is holding court. or Something. He makes some reference to Clark Gable being the king. And I was trying to figure out if this was the character whose name is king. Interesting. Because, like, like I said, we haven't seen this husband yet. <laughs> but we know his name is king. And then they describe this guy as the king. But this, this, is, this is not the husband. It's just weird to me that the word king was a common name around this time. Like, I also know there was a famous director named King Vidor. You don't see too many kings these days. But I'm with you. It was kind of a weird introduction to this character. Although he, he's got some good swagger about him. The, the swagger just radiates off. When I saw him, remember, I hadn't seen a Clark Gable movie before. And I watched the scene and, like... I instantly understood why he was one of the biggest movie stars. He's just got that charisma about him. Yeah, he's got a big presence, and it's kind of crazy to realize that this was five years before Gone with the Wind. Yeah. This really is getting back there pretty early. So Peter and Ellie, they do a little bit of bickering about a seat, and they kind of interact a little, but they don't really interact until the first leg of this trip is over. So there's... It's a bus trip north, and there's repeatedly, they stop for a bit so you can go get a meal and then get back on the bus. And at this first one, Ellie has her, her bag and her money stolen, and Peter tries to help her. And she's really coy about trying to wire back home. I guess that's send a telegram back home to get more money or get some help. She basically refuses to do it or talk more about it, even though she only has $4. So this is kind of a hint to Peter that maybe she has some uh, identity worth covering up or something. There's something going on here. And there's this driver or attendant of some sort on the bus who gets in a spat with multiple characters. And his thing is he always replies, oh, yeah, just over and over again. And it's something that got funnier to me the more it was used. But the last one is... Ellie gets off the bus and basically says, I'm going to go to some fancy hotel and get a meal. Uh, so hold the bus for me. And he just says, oh, yeah. 
but she still walks off and goes and of course ends up missing that bus yeah so this is another movie where we've got a secretly wealthy heiress who is incognito the same thing came up in it happened on fifth avenue where you've got the blooming romance between the poor dude and the girl who is secretly rich but he doesn't know for a little while it's all about the uptown girl yep as we saw in uh t97 as we called it (laughs) so this is the first time that one of the characters gets some information about ellie through a newspaper peter is able to figure out from a newspaper that ellie is in fact what ellie was the last name andrews ellie andrews and he kind of intentionally misses the bus at the same time that she misses the bus so that he can kind of follow her around because he has an idea that he can basically use this escape trip of hers as a front page story. And so he's going to help her out. He's going to kind of follow her around, etc. It's kind of interesting how prominent newspapers are here. It, it drives many of the plot points and it's even kind of lampshaded early on when he gets on the bus. There are literal stacks of newspapers in a seat and... Peter throws him out the window and makes some remarks about how newspapers have robbed him out of other stuff in the past, which I think is mostly a comment on his losing his newspaper job. But they, these newspapers really drive a lot of the plot here. Every single thing that the girl does winds up front page news. It's like every single development in this story gets a top of the fold headline. And, and it seems like multiple editions a day. Because characters keep, like, learning new things even while they're on the bus. So who is giving them all these early edition newspapers? I don't know. Yeah, it's almost like they're royalty. Like, you would expect this to happen in England or something, you know? If if one of the princes or princesses ran off. But it feels a little a stretch of an imagination that it would take the full span of the front page of the New York Times that this one daughter of a magnate is getting into trouble you know well they had they had radio but not tv yet so people had to be glued to something i guess if you think the the rockefellers and the carnegies and stuff the vanderbilts there was a little bit of stuff like that but you had to really be cream of the crop billionaire did you know anderson cooper is a vanderbilt really no i didn't that's interesting yeah while we're spitting trivia this evening (laughs) So after they both missed the bus, they board another bus and another man who refers to himself in the third person. It's always a good trait of an old movie to have one snarky side character, chatty side character who refers to themselves in the third person. I always like that trope, but he sits next to Ellie and starts basically hitting on her. And I know that we're supposed to find him annoying and distasteful, but I thought it was actually hilarious and I just wanted more. I wanted like the, the deleted scenes of him monologuing more about himself. He calls himself, I'm fun on the side, shapely, they call me, with accent on the fun. And he's like talking about women who sizzle and shit. And he's just a weird dude. I, I don't know. Yeah. In this whole movie, there's a lot of dense, fast paced dialogue. So if you're super into it, I think you would call it witty. Uh, if you find people are talking a little bit too much, you might call it wordy, but definitely he's got a lot of zingers that he's spitting. He's like, oh, honey girl, <laughs> you, you'll, 
you'll have a hot time tonight. I don't know. It's just in it's over and over again. That's true. He it, And boy howdy. It's a little much. I think this movie is kind of an early proto example of what would become the screwball comedy where that density of verbiage and wittiness that some might find exhausting and others might find illuminating or charming depending on the character and the quality of the writing. This was an early example of it, but that genre didn't really exist yet. So I've seen it listed as that genre, but I think that that subgenre or whatever really didn't peak till later, but you're definitely right. Part of this is just me like voyeuristically looking into the past and how like the smart Alex talked then like now this would be a buff guy showing off his muscles or something or a cat calling a woman on the street. I don't know. Anyways, I, I didn't mind shapely, although there was some diminishing returns on him as the movie went along. So the, this bus breaks down in the rain and like hits and in, goes into a ditch or something. And Peter gets a room at a nearby motel for him and Ellie to share, pretending to be husband and wife. But when they get in there, he hangs a sheet between them, and he calls it The Walls of Jericho. This first scene is kind of the first time we're supposed to feel really this electric sexual tension between them. But I gotta say, this round, there are other scenes that really worked for me. This one did not work for me very much, because... He's like trying to convince her that this is what they should do, but there's a really kind of coercive energy to him as he's like undressing and trying to tell her that this is what she's going to do. And she hasn't like co-signed this at all. I don't know. What did you think? Right. So he's saying like, you better get on that other side of the divider because I'm taking my clothes off. And he's like describing it in detail. My shirt. And then my socks, and you know what comes next. And he starts reaching for his pants, and she runs over there. Now, there's a long-standing urban legend that this scene just decimated America's undershirt industry. (laughs) He's not wearing one, is he? That's right. He unbuttons his shirt, and he's just got, boom, bare-chested Clark Gable underneath. That's funny. And uh, Snopes says... The answer is undetermined whether this really (laughs) destroyed, some people say 75% of undershirt sales dropped off, but apparently that's just something that people have said a bunch over the year and there's no hard data to really back it up. It's possible people just stopped buying undershirts because it was the Great Depression and why spend money on something nobody's going to see, Right. but it was iconic in some ways so when they wake up in the morning with this sheet the walls of jericho between them she kind of sleeps in and he does some kind of nice taking care of her he steams or or presses her clothes or something and gets her donuts i don't know if he makes the donuts or buys them or whatever and we get the first conversation of many where they're just kind of spitballing with each other talking about nothing relevant to the plot but just kind of building chemistry and i thought when scenes were like this they tended to work pretty well and in this case their discussion was an argument about whether they could dunk donuts well so he was saying oh you rich people don't know how to dunk donuts well and she's like she says no i know how to dunk donuts and i 
I liked it when they were just kind of hanging out together. That's when this movie worked for me. But this scene is kind of cut off abruptly when some goons come searching for Ellie. They're part of this squad of her father's looking for her. And they have to, on the fly, pretend to be a bickering husband and wife. And she kind of, like, messes up her hair enough that I guess it's supposed to be, well, maybe it's not her. I don't know. But they they really get into the acting of it. And it's kind of a, a bonding moment for them. And they start to get on the same wavelength here. This is kind of the moment of the the romantic comedy when they're starting to fall for each other. And the audience is really starting to root for them to be together. We then cut back to Ellie's father, and he is deciding to publicly offer a $10,000 bounty on finding her. And I was going to look up, what is $10,000 in 1937 worth today? Wait, it's 19... Wait, what's the year? 1934. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It would be worth almost $200,000 today. Wow. Seriously? That's crazy. I would believe it. I mean, this was back when you could get a bunch of stuff for like a nickel. Yeah, that's true. He's itemizing his stuff at some point and he says, I lost three shirts, so that's a dollar fifty. And I was like, How could losing three button up shirts really be a dollar fifty? But man, that recontextualizes a lot of this movie for me. Ten thousand dollars being the equivalent of two hundred thousand dollars. Okay. I'm gonna keep that in mind as we go through this recap here. So Ellie and Peter get back on that broken down bus and we get a a clip of them sitting together, singing together because there's this group of musicians who are just like playing the fiddle on the back of the bus and singing songs together. I don't know if this was really a thing. People just pulling out instruments and, and performing on public transportation, but I found it really charming. And it also had me thinking a lot about kind of the nature of music in the pre pop music industry. Like, how would they all know these songs? Like, this this kind of comedic, almost drinking-type song about the the flying trapeze. Is this a song you already knew? I, I did know this one. I had a compilation of, like, folk songs and maybe slightly newer than folk songs on, like, a Disney compendium when I was a kid that I listened to all the time. So I, I was very familiar with The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze. But I mean, think about in 1934, people had radio and stuff. So I think popular appreciation for big name music artists was not a new thing. But but even pre that, I mean, there was like sheet music that would be sold. So there were ways that music could be disseminated. That's true. Yeah, I know the radio was big at this point. Billboard didn't release its first issue until... A few years after this, 1936, but I guess if people had radios and you're right, I remember being fascinated about how important music sales used to be for Broadway shows, like the printed paper music sales, not the not the album or anything like that, like the sheet music. That was always wild for me. In fact, I heard one anecdote that they would have designated people who would would be like sitting near the audience or behind the audience and would gauge audience reaction to musical numbers on Broadway. And the reprise they would do at the very end would be whichever song 
got the biggest audience reaction with the idea being that you would get that song back in their head, the ones that they, they really loved, so that they would just have to go out and buy the sheet music for it. It would be fresh in their brain, which is pretty crazy to me. Well, also think about that back before the advent of recorded sound, the music that you heard was the music that you made. So people really needed to have instruments in the house and, and friends that they could sing and play with. That's interesting, yeah. I guess like you can imagine a radio being played on a bus, so why not in 1934 have it be some dude playing a fiddle on the back of the bus? But I guess the bus breaks... Maybe I'm mixing up my plot points here, but I think the bus breaks down again here. And it's not because of rain. This is like it bumps into something or it goes in a ditch, or I, I don't remember. This triggers a couple of things. So one is that... Peter and Ellie, who we have been repeatedly reminded are very short on cash, discover a fainted woman and her kid. And to support them, basically give the last of their money to this sick woman and her kid, which I have later seen called the save the cat moment. It's the moment where your characters do something selfless to help the world around them that does not advance the plot at all but it serves the purpose of making us realize that our protagonists are good people. Ah, oh, so that's what that means. I was personally wondering if these were scam artists. Like, the woman slumps over in her seat and the kid says, Oh, geez, mister, we need just a dollar. <laughs> and, and it's like, do they do this at every stop the bus makes? I don't know. That's, you know, I just went downtown to a city today and I saw quite a few people asking for money. And I, of course, felt terrible about it. Like, in general, I think our society does terrible by people who, for whatever reason, aren't able to support themselves and need the support of social structures that don't exist for them. But it also got me wondering, like, out of the, let's say I saw 40 of these people who were asking for money, were any of them, I don't know, people who were otherwise well off but we're putting on a show or, or anything like that like how common are these types of scam artists i'm really not sure probably varies over time and location yeah hard to say shirts are not three for a buck fifty anymore that's for sure <laughs> yeah another thing that happens right around the time that this bus breaks down again is that shapely the one guy who had hit on ellie earlier sees a newspaper article announcing the $10,000 bounty and approaches Peter and offers to go 50-50 with Peter on the bounty because one thing I might not have said, the way that Shapely gets talked down from bothering Ellie is Peter pretends to be her husband. And so Shapely knows that Peter and the, Ellie are connected in some way and is like, oh yeah, come help me out. We'll go 50-50 on this $10,000 bounty. And then we get this kind of weird scene that did not work for me, which is where Peter acts like he's this mafia type guy who's actually on a hit contract to kill Ellie or kidnap Ellie or something and wants to bring Shapely in on it. And it scares off Shapely. And this is this kind of scheme by Peter to get Shapely to kind of forget about Ellie and kind of run off and keep his mouth shut. I thought this moment made Peter look like kind of a jerk, but it also just made me wonder if 
let's say $5,000 is $100,000. That is a lot of money. Like, why is he just sneezing at that without considering it? Like, I don't know. I mean, I guess as the audience, we're supposed to be rooting for him and her to fall in love. But the fact that he didn't even think about it was kind of odd to me. Well, I mean, take into account that if he's the only one in on it, then he would get all the money instead of having this hanger on. We do see later that he's able to command like $2,000, which I guess was like $40,000 at the time, just for his story, just in advance on his his newspaper story. So maybe he's thinking he can get bigger bucks by keeping the, the story alive, you know? Yeah. I mean, another part of it is that Shapely obviously has designs on LA and if you also have designs on LA, do you want another dude hanging around in your hotel room? You know, there may be two I Love Lucy beds in this hotel room, but there's not three. <laughs> it's like, we, we don't want Shapely along for the ride, so whatever you gotta do to get him out of there, I'm on board with. Three is the crowd, Danny. <laughs> as, uh, as Tommy Wiseau would say. <laughs> That's true, yeah. But now Shapely's out of the picture, but the bus is still broken down, and so Ellie and Peter abandoned the bus and they're kind of i don't know exactly what they're walking to maybe the next town or something like that but they're walking through the fields and the wilderness and they get to this spot outside of a farm and they decide that's where they're going to spend the night and they kind of set up this bed where out of straw that they're both going to lie on and they've been kind of going back and forth teasing each other a whole lot and ellie says something like well, you can just go away if you don't, if it's, if any of this is bothering you, if taking care of me is bothering you. And she kind of looks away and he goes, steps out of frame to go help with something else and comes back. And when he's gone, she panics because she thinks that what she said about him going away actually made him go away. And we're starting to see cracks in there being cruel to each other and pretending that they're not falling in love at all. But this scene outside of the farm with the, the straw was the moment that I really noticed was beautifully shot. There's a lot of lovely black and white photography in this film. This is the peak of it for me. And I actually was reading a little bit about the movie and I found an article that was an interview with the cinematographer who's a gentleman named Joseph B. Walker. And he talked about this scene in particular. He said that it was the first and only time in his career he ever refused to shoot a scene because they were just going to do it on a small studio set. And the only props they had was one hay bale that they were supposed to like spread out enough straw to have it be imaginable to be this scene, what it ended up being like them kind of lying down somewhere out in the wilderness. And he, he refused to do it because he had actually been slated to shoot like some big costume drama with lots of lavish photography. And this was the one moment in the movie he, in the script that he had read and he was passionate about making look beautiful. And when they wanted to do it on some studio set, he was like, no, we need to go somewhere and do this on location where there's real grass and trees and, and we can bring straw there, multiple bales. And they ultimately came to a compromise. There was some tent near the studio where they were able to essentially recreate it inside this this big tent. But I think his dedication to making this scene look good pays off because 
I thought this was a beautiful scene. I agree. And I also want to point out, this is the second night in the story, so... Yeah. Here we are, blowing apart the title. It happened two nights, and counting. When they wake up the next morning, they figure the way they're going to get to their next town is to hitchhike. And so we get a little bit more of them kind of just spitballing back and forth and making fun of each other. And Peter has this theory that... I want more of his theories on life. Like, I would watch sequels to this where we just hear what he thinks about things and like what his day-to-day is but he's got this theory about thumbs how you can use your thumb to hitchhike and he's got like three different forms you can use and he's really confident about it and of course none of his his thumb movements his grand theory of thumb movement turns out to be misplaced he's actually not able to do the hitchhiking but ellie steps in and is able to flash her leg as we kind of mentioned earlier and the, of course the first truck stops to come pick them up and i think this is like the iconic moment of the film if you google the just the title of the movie many of the top images are from this scene either the leg itself or them standing around trying to hitchhike and it is it is a moment when you can feel kind of the sexuality of the movie boiling over a little bit when she pulls out her leg i can see why it would have been iconic or perhaps a bit shocking in the the moment given the times i did read one anecdote about this moment as well too apparently they were going to do a stunt double for it because it would be somewhat unbecoming to have the main actress actually pulling out her leg but colbert the the actress was there when they were filming it with the stunt double and thought the stunt doubles leg wasn't sexy enough and would reflect poorly on her and so she's like no i'll actually do it bring me in there i'll do it and so it's actually her leg that you're seeing there (laughs) no fake legs yeah so something i thought was interesting in this scene when they're like walking around this kind of rural area in the morning clark gable finds some carrots that he's munching on and trying to convince claudette colbert to eat but she kind of turns up her nose at them says oh you like to eat raw carrots but when clark gable is you know spitting his rapid fire dialogue and munching this carrot and strutting around he was giving off very strong bugs bunny energy (laughs) and i actually looked it up and multiple places say that bugs bunny's stance at least and him eating carrots was influenced by this scene, wow. supposedly. But I, I think it might be more than that. Uh, because traits of this character, Peter Warren, he talks a lot pretty quick. And he's always got this confidence. And he also is kind of flippant towards authority. Like, he's never intimidated by an authority figure. That's true. Confronting him. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of cartoon characters that are just copies of people who were prominent in the pop culture of the day. Like, Fred Flintstone is just uh, the Honeymooners guy. Uh, Jackie Gleason. And, like, Top Cat is Phil Silvers. And uh, Snagglepuss is Burt Lahr. It's just like, copy what a comedian is doing that already works. So, I'm calling it now. Bugs Bunny is Clark Gable. 
Interesting. Uh, I may need to cite my sources in a future episode, but I think there's something to that. <laughs> I like that. I didn't pick up on it, but I like that. Because I, I, I think his first appearance, Bugs Bunny, was not until 1938. So I think the math checks out. This would have been well ingrained. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, the carrots are kind of prominent. We get a moment later when Ellie reluctantly munches on a carrot herself. And I liked how they, they brought the the through line of, of Clark Gable's character, Peter, picking these carrots and her initially refusing them, even as he munched away on them and her finally giving in later. But I didn't even think of Bugs Bunny. I liked that a lot. But as I mentioned, she was able to successfully flag down a car and the driver of this car is this big dude who I thought looked a lot like Jim Gaffigan. Kind of got this broad rectangular face and receding hairline. And his tick is that he keeps singifying whatever he's saying. Like whatever's going on, he's singing about what's happening. He basically mistakes them as honeymooners. And so he has this song about hitchhikers on a honeymoon. And then at some point he asks them if they're hungry and they say no. And so he has this song about young people in love are never hungry, which is a song that Clark Gable later gets stuck in his head and sings later in the movie, which I enjoyed. So this actor is Alan Hale Sr., who was the father of Alan Hale Jr., who would go on to play the skipper on Gilligan's Island. Oh, man. And who... 13 years after this movie did pop up in it happened on fifth avenue so there's a hail legacy in these it happened movies <laughs> the goods connections the tendrils just get deeper and deeper but at some point they stop to to get gas in the car and there's kind of this weird exchange where peter and ellie step out of the car and the driver like hops in the car and drives away with their one remaining suitcase at this point. And I don't know why he was driving away from them. If he was like trying to escape them, really, if he was willingly giving them a ride, but Peter chases him down and we get a cut. Basically Clark Gable running into the distance and then Clark Gable driving back with a car and he reveals, Oh yeah, I had to beat the guy up, but I stole his car. So now we have a car. How did you feel about that? <laughs> you know, not great is the answer, but it got me wondering why I didn't feel great. And I think like cars used to be more like, I don't know, a less personal thing. It's like, I don't know if someone stole your bike or something like that. It's, I mean, it's a little more than that, I think, but I think there used to be less of a barrier between your car is like one of your essential personal possessions that defines you and is worth tens of thousands of dollars back in the Model T days when there was, you know, millions of those on the street. I don't know, but it was kind of odd. Oh. What, what did you think? That's interesting. Well, I just found the, the dopey singing dude to be charming and he was going out of their way to transport them. I mean, I, I, he did drive away. I, I took it as him just being absent-minded. Maybe there was some nefarious intent. Uh, I don't know. It just seemed... And to have it happen off screen. It's like, oh yeah, I took his car. He's tied up somewhere. Whatever. <laughs> it was rather callous. This was the moment that I was like, oh... Yeah, this guy is not a knight in shining armor. <laughs> Clark Gable is going to do what he has to do. Right. That's true. 
so around now we cut back to Ellie's dad and he's getting desperate trying to find Ellie. None of his agents on the road are able to find her and he agrees that he will drop his push to have there be an annulment between Ellie and King and gets it in the newspapers. And I guess the idea is that Ellie will see this and will return herself to her father because one of the main reasons she was running away was because he wanted to annul her marriage. So at this point, it's not even like for the masses. The headlines are basically directly for the benefit of Ellie. But Ellie does see this and perhaps surprisingly to the world, but perhaps not to the viewer, she does not rush home. In fact, quite the opposite. When they are apparently a three-hour drive away from New York, she insists on stopping for the night at another roadside motel. So it's night number three. Yeah. It happened three nights we're at. Yeah, that's a good point. They once again set up the quote-unquote walls of Jericho. They're lying down, getting ready for bed, and having this conversation across the sheets. And they realize that they're never going to see each other again. Ellie in particular seems kind of traumatized by this and they start talking about how they see love in this world and Peter admits that he has a fantasy of escaping to an island in the Pacific with a woman someday and Ellie finally breaks down and confesses that she's fallen in love with Peter, fallen in love with him over the past few days and wants to do everything he's saying, run away with him, away from everything that her previous world had been her her wealthy coddled existence but in the moment peter kind of rebuffs her and sends her back to her side of the blanket and they both i guess go to sleep at this point she's kind of crying a little bit but we cut to the middle of the night peter approaches ellie and is like did you mean what you said and she's asleep so she doesn't answer she doesn't wake up Now we cut to the moment of the rom-com that you have in the past mentioned that you dread, where we have the one last thing that pulls them apart just as they both realize they want to be together. And in this case, it's kind of a series of weird decisions and miscommunications. So I guess he decides that he wants to get some money to be like a worthy partner to her, maybe buy her a ring or something like that. So he's going to drive to New York to get an advance on his newspaper story so that he can then come back to her. And because they're only three hours each way, it must be around midnight or something like that. So he can be back in time that she's going to wake up. And I thought that this plot point made no sense. I do not know what he was doing. Literally, all he had to do was like share his feelings and it would have worked. But, spoiler alert, I have a proposed rewrite of this plot element and a couple other plot elements that I will get to once we finish the plot recap here on how I would have told this story slightly differently. Okay. Yeah, it was definitely jarring. I mean, I guess his logic is if he's got the car, where is she going to go? So he's going to run this errand and, and come back and she'll still be there is his thinking. But yeah, I agree. D- totally not a good plan what he's <laughs> what he's doing here. He like just leave a note, you know? That's why you always leave a note. I, I mean, I I think it's honestly kind of odd that he shot her down in the first place. He didn't really have a reason to do that when she's like throwing herself at him yeah. the night before. Uh That's true. I was thinking 
you know, maybe he's seeing himself as, like, having a responsibility to get her to her husband. And, like, he, he feels like she's spoken for and he can't act on what he's feeling. But even so, I mean, he's shown his cards as kind of a cad in some ways already. Like, he'll tie up the skipper's dad if he has to. So, <laughs> you know, if something seems like it's going to work out for him, that's not too sinister. Just... You know, she's right there. Right. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. If there was a reason that he turned her down, it's definitely not clearly articulated. The So there's motel owners of, of this place where they're staying. There had already been an exchange with them where they were kind of skeptical of them. With good reason, because they're out of money at this point. So they're just like conning their way into whatever room they have. But the motel owners see him running off. And basically go and wake up Ellie and kick her out of the room, too. But when she wakes up, she's heartbroken because Peter isn't there. And so she thinks that, oh, you know, he ran off without me. I professed my love and he wanted no part of it, so he ran away. And so she is totally dejected at this point. And she decides to go turn herself into her father. So they have parted ways. And... I guess the reason that this didn't work for me as a third act conflict in a romantic comedy is that I think what you should do in a good romantic comedy is re-highlight the initial differences between the characters. And by highlighting those, you then get to see the growth that the characters have gone through and force the characters one last time for them to really commit to being together in spite of those differences to really commit to the changes that they've made. But this doesn't really do that. It, like, it doesn't address the reasons that they might not want to be together, that she's rich and he's not, and that he's kind of a cad, as you said, and she's a prim and proper lady. It was just like he forgot to leave a note, and that was basically all there was to it. It does evolve into her thinking that he's just in it for the money, but at this point it's not that, so I don't know. As Peter is just about to return from his night trip, he sees Ellie being carted away by her father and makes the same assumption that she did, which is that the other has decided to give, give up on their feelings in, in this potential romance. And thus, their, their time together is at an end, and we get a transition to this kind of last uh, segment here with a bunch of newspaper clippings. Like, we get a bunch of... This is something that was has happened throughout the film. Yet another element of of newspapers being highlighted but um we learned that i guess ellie will be holding a new wedding ceremony even though they're actually already married but this will i guess make it official or whatever although this had me wondering why did it matter if they were married like if you're still gonna have the crux of the finale be a wedding ceremony you should have just made them engaged i don't know maybe like engagements were different back 87 years ago and one of the newspaper headlines we see is Groom to land at wedding in auto gyro, which to me read like something Mr. Burns would say in The Simpsons. But I guess King is a, a pilot and a stuntsman of some sort, so he'll arrive at the wedding in an auto gyro. Yeah, I'm a big fan of auto gyros. And you're right, there's a Mr. Burns line where he wants to send a letter or a telegram, I think. A telegram to the... Prussian consulate in Siam, <laughs> or, or, or I guess it's a parcel because it's got to get taken, obviously, on the auto gyro. And of course, none of those things exist anymore. 
Uh, well, I guess uh, enthusiasts do still fly auto gyros. So if you've never seen one, it's got a propeller that pulls the craft along forward like a propeller on an airplane. But then it's also got a helicopter rotor on the top. So it's got a thing spinning on the front and a thing spinning on the top. Yeah, I had never seen one before. It, it made me think of drones a little bit, although I guess... Drones, do they have both of those blades? I don't know. Drones have got multiple um, rotors. Uh, most of the ones I've seen have got them all on top like a helicopter. Okay. But I'm sure there's multiple ways you could do it. I think we should note that helicopters proper didn't really exist yet. It says that the Sikorsky helicopters only started being mass-produced in the 40s. Interesting. So this was still, like, cutting edge. So it may have been a bigger deal then than we're accustomed to so then we cut to the wedding day now it's the wedding day we see ellie in her lovely white wedding gown her father approaches her and she seems very distracted and for whatever reason maybe not overwhelmed with the auto gyro i don't know why he kind of detects that maybe she's in love with someone else and she confesses that she had fallen for a man named peter warren and all of a sudden, he's like real sympathetic about her love life. I don't know where that was at the beginning of the film. I feel like his character kind of abruptly shifted in this last act of being whatever my daughter wants type dad from the my daughter will do what I say type dad that he seemed at the beginning. Maybe he just really didn't like King Westlake or whatever his <laughs> name is. Yeah, I guess that could be it could be a King issue. That's right. So he recently had seen a letter which Ellie grabs and reads from Peter about a quote-unquote financial matter regarding Ellie. And her assumption is that basically he's just going for the bounty money and that's why he was hanging out with her all along. And she gets even more upset at him. But when Peter comes to this meeting with the father, he wants nothing to do with the, the $10,000 bounty. He just wants his reimbursement for the things that he lost during the trip taking care of Ellie. That's where he's itemizing his stuff. It's like $1.50 for the shirts, $5 for gasoline, other things like this. And I guess this puts some respect in Ellie's father's eye for this guy. He he's just It's just a matter of principle. That's what Peter says. He wants to get his, his money back. I'm not sure exactly what the principle is here, like the, the reimbursement or whatever, but yeah, he, he's not interested in the $10,000 bounty. Well, it's the Han Solo gambit. That way you can have the moment where the female love interest can say, oh, he only ever cared about the money. He just wanted his reward. But then the kind of piratey, roguish character can say, no, you're more important to me than the money. That's true, yeah. And you see that underneath the roguish exterior, there's a heart of gold. So th th there we go again. Uh, Han Solo, also Clark Gable. <laughs> It all, it all tracks back to Clark Gable. One of the, the Ur characters of cinema, perhaps. I don't know. Ellie's father and Peter kind of have this protracted conversation where Ellie's father tries to keep asking Peter, are you in love with my daughter? Are you in love with Ellie? And he keeps not saying no, but saying some other thing about her that drives him up the wall. And then I guess... I always like this structure when they don't answer the question, but you can tell 
they're evading answering the question, but it's like a really meaningful question and they finally blurt it out. I, I usually like that as a little dialogue structure here. But eventually he does, in fact, blurt out that he's in love with Ellie, which Ellie's father doesn't share with her like the details of this conversation until they're literally walking down the aisle, which like this was important. You could have worked a little harder to pull her aside and kind of outline it. But we get deep in the wedding. The auto gyro has landed. The groom is up the altar. Ellie's walking down the aisle. They're exchanging their vows. And when it's time for Ellie to say, I do, she instead runs off in her, her lovely white dress. You know, I'm going to cut in here. I just realized that they had the budget to uh, get an auto gyro for this, but they wouldn't give the cinematographer a hay bale. <laughs> it's something. I don't know. <laughs> Somewhat oddly to me, actually quite oddly to me, we don't actually see Ellie and Peter reunite. We see her run off, and then we see Ellie's father arranging the annulment of the marriage with King. Then we cut to the motel owners talking about this couple that's arrived. We see this car that Peter has been driving around. I think it's still the one that he stole from, what, what was the, the actor's name? I just kept thinking of him as Jim Gath. Yeah, Alan Hale. Alan Hale Sr. Yeah. There's some mention of the walls of Jericho that, that one, of the, one of these new married couple people mentioned. And then we get a quick shot of a blanket falling off of the line, being pulled down, which to the viewer is a suggestion that they are in fact going to share a bed that evening. And I guess even in the pre-code days, they didn't dare go much farther than that to show that blanket being pulled away. But this actually left me with a couple of questions. First of all, why didn't we actually see the actors? Maybe it would have been too scandalous. I don't know. But what was this thing about the marriage license that the hotel owner brings up? Like, are we to believe that now they're in fact married? I guess audiences at this time would want them to be if they're going to be sharing a bed together. But, or was it like a fake marriage license? Or was it they were pretending that he was king or something? I don't know. Did you make sense of this last plot point where the there's some talk of a marriage license? I actually didn't notice this at all. Uh, I would assume that it was real. You're probably right that it was... They didn't want any uh, canoodling out of wedlock. That's what I figured. You know, it's like the uh, the computer chip in Now You See Me. Like, do, Was it real? Was it fake? Does it matter? No. All that matters is that that we have Ellie and Peter together at the end of the movie. For that is how It Happened One Night from 1934 concludes. Even if they're at the end, I, I suppose it's the fourth night, at least. <laughs> right, because were there any, any... Presumably it wasn't the same day of the wedding, so there were probably some intermediate nights as well. Yeah, there could have been a whole bunch of nights. Who knows? So, Brian, I told you I played script doctor on this movie. Do you want to hear my proposed rewrites, or do we want to maybe talk about some good things and not so good things first? I think you're raring to talk about your story concept. Sure. So let's hear it. So, the first thing I've already mentioned, I don't see any reason for her already being married to King, whatever, maybe social mores at the time. Just make him a fiancé. It makes the logistics of the plot a lot easier. You don't have to worry about annulments or anything. We need King to be more of a villain. 
So I like this idea of us getting more of a sense that he is just like this shallow guy. He's he's a Billy Zane type guy. He just wants a big flashy wedding and he wants the status and he wants to show off his gyrocopter. He doesn't really care that much about her. If we get a little bit more of this, this king is kind of a snob guy, it accomplishes a couple of things. First, it makes us more sympathetic to the dad's take early on that her and King being together is just like a sham bad thing that's for money and spotlight. And second, if we mention the gyrocopter early, then I'm going to be stoked the whole movie to see a gyrocopter. I also think King as a villain could be all about vehicles. <laughs> like he could be following after them that, you know, this is a road trip movie and he could just be showing off all the different kinds of vehicles he has. He could be like uh, Dick Dastardly. Well, hold that thought, because I have one more King vehicle that's going to make an appearance later in my, my script rewrite here. So my next my next bullet point is when Peter loses his job, instead of having him kind of strut around about it, make him sad about it. Like, make him worried and upset at least a little bit. Or, like, at least make a remark about he really needs the money from that job. Like, maybe, oh, that would have been a $7,000 annual salary or something like that. Because if we even get a specific number in there, it makes the $10,000 later on seem more valuable, seem, you know, more perspective on that. And it will also give us an early hint that he is vulnerable to money issues somewhat in his life. Because to the extent that this movie is making fun of class or like using that as a, a factor, we don't really see too much of him dealing with the fact that he is not an upper-class guy very much. I feel like we need a little bit of that, of him struggling with money. And then we also care more about his desire to have a good story that sells to his editor or get his job back or anything like that. And I think one thing you could add in there to kind of emphasize some of the things that are to come and kind of the tension on the scarcity of money, particularly for him, is... Like early on, have one of the cases where they have to pay for something, whether it's food or one of the rooms or something like that, have Ellie pay for it. And Peter insists that he's going to pay her back, quote, as a matter of principle, which is a phrase that gives a lot of attention at the end of the movie, but I don't think we had seen earlier. And this movie does a lot of having a phrase or having a concept that then gets mirrored later on. And I feel like that line had more potential for that. But yeah, like have him owe her some money or something like that. And he's going to pay her back as a matter of principle, because that's going to come down the line where this ending that I think you can make be a little tighter and a little more thematically in line with the characters we see. But then after, if you make these tweaks to the beginning, I think you can have much of the rest of their encounter be the same, but I'm going to have it diverge a little bit when shapely comes to Peter offering the 50 50 split. And instead of Peter doing his pretend to be a mafia bit to scare Shapely away, Peter agrees to it because holy shit, this is $5,000. That's $100,000 in modern day money. That would be life changing to him. He just lost his job. But Peter has this maybe this idea that maybe he can also still write a good story and get some of the bounty money. And he, he doesn't need to elaborate this. We can kind of pick up on it as it goes. But he basically tells Shapely, all right, meet us at the motel in the next town over tomorrow night, and we can split that bounty. So then the idea is he can spend a little bit more time with Ellie, maybe work on a story, but then still get some of the reward. And so then we still have Shapely disappear from the scene for a bit, but 
now Peter is actually eyeing this bounty, at least at this point, at least when he hasn't fully fallen for her. Okay, can I cut in for a second? Yeah. I, I am still not understanding the shapely hang-up. Once <laughs> Gable knows about the $10,000 reward, if he's got the girl with him, he can just get the whole thing. There's no need for Shapely to be in the equation for Peter to get the money. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, I want Shapely to play a role later in the movie. I didn't want him to not disappear. I actually like him. So Okay. All right. So let's go with what I had there for a second, where they agree to go in on it together for whatever reason, but they're going to reconvene in a couple of nights. I do agree with you that the logistics of that might not make sense. Maybe you got to tweak what I'm writing here a little bit, but that's the gist of it. Okay, I'm just being the script doctor to your script doctor. No, that's good. That's good. So then we can get no changes to the the meat of the story here. They still get the night at the away in the the hay bales, which were filmed in a tent apparently, and they still have this night where they confess that they're falling in falling in love, and. This is when Peter and Shapely are supposed to reconvene. Or maybe, you know what, maybe Peter still scares Shapely off, but they happen to bump into him again here. I, I guess it would it would be basically the same thing. But at this point, when Peter sees Shapely, he's now going to tell him to beat it. The, the deal's off. We're not turning her in. She's with me now, because Peter is actually going to reciprocate his love when she confesses it the first time. Because to your point... We, we know he's going to feel that. Why not have him basically say it right away? But instead, so here's where they can get like the, the tension between them. So when she professes her love and he reciprocates, he says he needs to go make a call. So he steps away. And what he's going to do is he's actually going to tell the editor that he can't write the story because it would be cashing in on his, his sweet Ellie that he's now fallen for. And he doesn't want to further like cash in on her celebrity status or whatever and with this story. But when Ellie steps outside, maybe looking for him or something, she also sees Shapely. And Shapely lets loose that, hey, Peter and I were going to work together. Oh, he's in it for the bounty. And so now when Peter returns from his phone call trying to call off the story, she's really mad because he's, she's thinking that he was in it all along for the bounty. And she says something like, I can't believe you do this for only $10,000 when we love each other. But at this, Peter gets really defensive. So now here you can have that element where we're rediscovering the things that made them different in the beginning. She's spoiled and he's down on his luck with money. And so now he gets mad because she's diminishing what $10,000 would mean to him. And they both storm off in a huff. Ellie calls her father and plans to proceed with marrying King. And then we continue with Peter being desperate and Ellie kind of in a huff agreeing to marry King. And on the wedding day, we do see the auto gyro and we see King step out of it. And here's the other the other vehicle for King. When he gets out of his auto gyro, he's going to get in a luxury car. Just imagine like an old school Rolls Royce or something to take to the wedding venue. Because now at some point we're going to have the visual cue, the visual contrast of the Rolls Royce and then this one car that... Ellie and Peter probably stole from some guy and I've been driving around together. And then when we have the note about the financial matter, instead of like him itemizing the things he wants reimbursed, 
the actual financial matter is it's the matter of principle. He needs to return the two dollars that he said that he would repay Ellie from earlier or whatever it was. So now this does a couple of things. First of all, we have a matter of principle mirrored from the beginning. And second of all, we, we can really believe that Ellie's dad would turn around and like Peter because Peter is clearly not in it for the money when he could be collecting a payday. Instead, he's actually honoring his debts and honoring the importance of money. And rather than having her storm out of the, the wedding at this point, have her run off earlier. I don't see why it needs to be in the middle of the wedding. It's just kind of ridiculous, but she can still run off with her, her dress. And, uh, as soon as she has a conversation with her father and one of the last images we'll see is them driving in the model T together past this Rolls Royce. So we get the contrast of the classes and the thing that she's choosing, she's choosing the man she actually loves, not the snobby money loving guy. And we can end with a similar motel scene with the walls of Jericho falling, but then we don't need to deal with any of this wedding license or annulment stuff or a call with the dad or whatever. You could still end with the artfully restrained shot of the blanket falling, but because they would have reunited before then at the wedding venue as she's running off in her wedding dress and perhaps even see them embrace and kiss, then we actually get the payoff on seeing them reunite. So that's that's my laundry list. I spent, as you can imagine, I spent quite a bit of time after I saw the movie workshopping in my head how I could have made the things that didn't make sense to me or I didn't like work better. And that was what I came up with, even if it involves a little bit more shapely than our, our uh, movie in its current incarnation actually has. Dan is much better about doing the extra homework outside of <laughs> simply watching the movie. So I, I commend you for that and, and really thinking about what would improve the story. I agree that your additions make some of the themes resonate a little better. And, you know, having elements that repeat and build and develop is probably a good idea that would have added to it. Well, that transitions nicely to the next section. I don't have quite enough good and not so good things to kind of break them down into separate categories. I just had a few remaining bullet points. But one of them is I really feel like they didn't fully capitalize on the class themes. Like this movie is set against the Great Depression. It was 1934. That was like the peak of the Great Depression. And this does perhaps make any time we see actual class disparity and people riding buses and struggling to get by on a dollar here and there as opposed to this billionaire that makes that a little bit more resonant but it doesn't really do anything with it other than just pointing out how rich and spoiled ellie is and how much sway her dad has and just letting clark gable call her a spoiled brat over and over again i don't know i i, I do feel like they could have done a little bit more with that theme right we love some class disparity on this show yeah parasite Parasite, Titanic, It Happened on Fifth Avenue. It comes up a lot. A Christmas Carol. I guess that has been a recurring thing that we like about movies. Now I have to go look up some other cross-the-track romances. I kind of hit on most of my other things I liked and didn't like. Really liked the chemistry of the leads. Anytime it was just them playing off each other, I could see why this was like a classic at the time and has remains a classic because... Clark Gable just oozes charisma. Claudette Colbert is magnetic on screen, and together they have fireworks chemistry. So it was a really phenomenal casting, I thought. 
And I just want to reemphasize, it blows my mind that this movie is 87 years old. Like, that's as old as, as my one grandfather who's still alive. And he's real old. So, like, me imagining this movie being that old is kind of crazy. I don't know. Like, a lot of things happened. Like, this is pre-World War II, pre a lot of things that, to me, are, like, ancient history. Right. We haven't done any silent movies yet, but this was only, like seven years into the advent of movies having talking right what about you did you have any strengths or weaknesses of the film that we haven't yet talked about well i think it's probably just going to be reiterating there's certainly a lot of chemistry between the two leads i liked the kind of planes trains and automobiles road movie that we get here i liked that i got to see an auto gyro <laughs> Yeah, overall, it was pretty charming. And it was something that I hadn't seen before. Just uh, something a little bit different. At the same time, it does feel surprisingly modern, even though it's so old. Right. And I think a lot of that stems from being the pre-code. The moments that I kind of noticed it felt old is that even though Ellie's character has a lot going on with her and she's a pretty realized character... There is still some kind of messed up gender stuff that I know movies probably still struggle with, but the way that he basically just inserts himself into her life and her kind of trip and her fate here without really any consent whatsoever from her just felt kind of ooky to me. And their bickering occasionally turned into him threatening her with violence in a way that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable like it was over the top and i didn't know how over the top we were supposed to actually feel it as it was written like was it more common to playfully threaten breaking your neck and stuff like that i don't know some of that stuff was a little tough to watch but i do agree that it felt a lot more modern than it certainly could have given the the era but yeah that basically concludes my thought i hit most of my other points as we were talking about the movie and my rewrites my proposed rewrites. That was probably my most extensive proposed rewrite since our second episode when I attempted to rewrite The Founder. <laughs> I'm interested to hear your rating for this one. I think it's probably going to, even despite the script that could use another edit, I think it's probably going to rank more highly than The Founder. Well, that's a good transition because we are now to our section, Is It Good? Our eight-point scale of how good... The movie we just watched is so brian you're the guest you get to go first i'm gonna ask you is it happened one night good to me i would say it is good i'm going to give this our score five out of eight which we've labeled good now i think the last romantic comedy we looked at well we we've considered a few but I remember we watched Some Kind of Wonderful from 1987. And in that, I gave a pretty detailed description of what I think a five feels like. And that is that it it leaves a good taste in my mouth. I, I, I go away having enjoyed watched... I come away having enjoyed watching the movie. And that's my feeling here, is this was charming. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It, it moves pretty briskly. And 
it's got good performances from the leads, and I buy that they would like each other and love each other. So I don't know that I'm going to be banging the drum trying to get people to watch this, but I enjoyed it. Where does it fall for you, Dan? Oh, uh, one last thing is I will say that this is a higher five for me than was some kind of wonderful. So for me, I thought this movie, despite me having a lot of nitpicks as I went through, I think it really works. I think it's really well written. I do think the third act is way worse than the first two acts. And you know I don't like it when movies end badly. It's got to it's got to end strong. But I would say up until that ending, I was like a pretty solid 7 out of 8 on this. Like I could see it's really beautifully shot from time to time. The chemistry of the leads, like these are just all-time Hollywood stars at their peaks. I mean, again, I didn't really know either of them prior to this, but I know they are both big shots and they're really kind of carrying their charm here. And I've always say that like half of the battle for a rom-com is having good chemistry with the leads. And this one absolutely nails that. It's got a lot of funny moments. It's got a lot of charming moments and romance. And I believe they're falling in love. I was in the seven territory until I really did feel like it lost a lot of steam with just miscommunications and we don't actually see them reunite at the end and that brought it down a little bit for me. So I'm going to land on a six. For me, this is a very good movie. It's one that I would happily watch again. It might even be one that I would recommend again, but it doesn't enter my upper echelon of movies or even of romantic comedies. Um, I, I feel like for the time, given how much has changed in society and movie making since then, on a curve, it's outstanding, but on where it stands today, it's a six out of eight. So I, I'm putting it slightly above you. I, I really found this movie quite charming and uh, I enjoyed it. So I'm glad that we both liked it, at least to some extent here. I'm looking back at some of our past ratings and I gave some kind of wonderful Kate and Leopold and this one all fives. <laughs> uh, I, I think I'm just a genre man. To get to six territory, you need to throw a giant monster into the mix or something. Yeah. Even even time travel couldn't boost Kate and Leopold above a five. <laughs> Maybe if there was like a time loop or, or like a killer on the loose or something like that. Yeah, you, you need a sinking ship to fill up the second half of the movie. So, <laughs> I don't know if this is appropriate for just throwing in there. I recently tallied up our ratings through 33 episodes and I had rated movies a total of seven rating points higher than you across all of our episodes. So now I guess that's up to eight rating points. And like, I don't know, it feels like that number should be equal. Like if we're each choosing a movie every week, so it's kind of like an average of our two tastes. Maybe I'm just a little more generous in my grading than you are. Then again, we had five ratings in one of my episodes so i don't know about that that was the high school musical episode there's a lot of variables there too i mean honestly over 34 episodes to have a seven point difference i don't think that's that insane that's true it, it could be bigger plus i mean the the motivations behind our picks can vary 
I mean, if it was just us picking movies that we liked, which it's been a lot of that. Right. But I, I feel like that would get monotonous and kind of invalidate the rating system a little bit. So we we do try to pick our movies for a variety of reasons. But what do you have for us, Brian, for next week? Okay, so this week we took a dive into an older Oscar winner. I wanted to consider some slightly more timely Oscar coverage. Now, it's not going to be a Buzzed on Movies comprehensive three-episode drop all at once, but I wanted to cover a Oscar nominee from this year, which won for Best Documentary, and this is My Octopus Teacher. Have you heard of this one? So I've heard of it, but I don't know too much about it. All right, so it's on Netflix, which... I'll get the statistics for you next week, but just a ton of the Oscar movies this year were on Netflix and, like, made under the Netflix banner. It's just some crazy number of them, and I'm going to get that number for next week. But I think the angle of this movie is that a filmmaker keeps going back to the same spot. He's like a scuba diver, and he bonds with this one individual octopus. And, like, builds a relationship with the octopus. And just the idea of a nature documentary being specifically about not just, like, one animal species, but one individual animal, I think is going to be interesting. And uh, I want to check it out, and this is going to be my excuse to do that. I like it when humans bond with a specific animal. Particularly if it's not, like, a dog or a common one. Like, I've seen clips of zookeepers returning to their zoos and the animals getting really excited, like a lion jumping up and giving him a hug. I I dig that vibe. So I will look to my octopus teacher with enthusiasm and excitement. Yeah, it should be fun. And this one was fun, too. So it's, it's always a joy checking out these movies with you, Dan. I'm glad we're keeping the train rolling down the tracks or the love bus as the case may be <laughs> the love bus i i think there was a reality show starring brett michaels called love bus or it might have been bus of love <laughs> for some reason this is kind of dumb i thought it was a train at first like it's not a train i don't know why i thought it was a train well you you heard me just say i said train too so it would be a little bit more evocative if it were a train. Trains are more romantic than buses. I agree. They're more poetic. Like, the Before trilogy, that's where Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy meet, is on a train. There's something romantic about a train. Anyways, thanks for listening, Brian. Thanks for joining and watching an old school movie with me. I have a couple of slightly older movies on the docket for the next few weeks, but... I don't think any older than this, so it's been fun going back to the black and white days. Oh, absolutely. I hope it's wet your palate because, yeah, before long we got to start getting some silence in the mix. Yeah, agreed. I'm still keeping with my goal of, like, upbeat for a few in a row, but uh, so- someday I'm going to throw some bleak silence <laughs> your way. I love me a bleak silent. I've been watching one recently called The Phantom Carriage from... Mm-hmm. 1922. Anyways, thanks for joining us, listeners, and I will see you all next week. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.